Now, I was in Lancaster uh, for a few years, and uh, I used to run a Bible study for students um, at the church, and it was a sort of in-person, sort of 15 uh, lads together, and we would study the Bible together. And one week we decided to shake things up by introducing a heresy bell. I've got it here. There we go. It's simple, just sort of put it on the table and dinged it. That was the idea. And we had it. The idea was that we said one of the leaders of the group at some point in the meeting would say something that was wrong about God. Something that was heretical. And we told the people in the group that what they had to do is when they thought they heard us say something heretical, something wrong about God, they had to ding the bell. Now it was an interesting result of what what happened afterwards, because some people in the group decided that every other sentence it was, you know, hit the bell and uh, must have said something wrong, they were a bit gung-ho. But other people, they sort of sat there and they never rung the bell, even when we'd said something that was sort of blatantly wrong. They happily sort of sat there and, and accepted everything we said. We did tell them afterwards what we'd said that was wrong before we think we're being cruel. But it brings up a good question, doesn't it? When do we ring our heresy bell? When do you stand up and say, no, that's false. You're teaching what's false. Not just that it's not great teaching or it's imperfect teaching, but that it's false teaching. There's a big difference, isn't there? Because all human teaching, to some degree, is imperfect, isn't it? It might be unclear, it might be clumsily worded, it might be overly simplistic or overly complicated. There might be the odd mistake or slip of the tongue or factual error, so that sometimes people say or write what they don't mean. Another church, I once was doing a talk and I gave a Bible reference that was in the wrong book. I think about three people came afterwards, you got the wrong reference in your, your talk. And they were quite serious about it. But they, even then, they didn't call me a false teacher. So it's not just about errors or sort of mistakes that we can make, but false teaching, actually teaching what is false. And in John's day, as in our day, there were false teachers, but they're not easy to spot, are they? They don't sort of stand up and announce themselves, that, you know, hello, I am a false teacher. They don't wear a sort of badge or a sticker to tell you who they are. John here in verse 1 calls them false prophets. Those who claim to speak in the name of the Lord, but actually teach what is false. People who claim to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, as all true Christians are, but in fact it seems another spirit is at work there. But as I say, they're not always so easy to spot, are they? They don't have horns coming out of their heads or signs around their neck. Jesus calls them wolves in sheep's clothing. Which if you think about that, means they're quite hard to spot. They'll look like a sheep but they're actually a wolf. And Jesus says you'll spot them by their character, the fruit of their lives. We've just been thinking about fruits, haven't we? How they live. But John says you'll also spot them by their content, the fruit of their lips, what they say. He tells us in verse 1 to test the spirits. You see there in verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. What it's saying though is we're not to believe everyone who claims to be speaking the Holy Spirit's words. Whether that be in a pulpit or a lectern, or in a conversation or discussion. Whether they're claiming supernatural insights or just super nerdy Bible skills. Either way, 
which attests what is said, because they're claiming to speak from God. And the way we do that is we listen to what is said. Because the Holy Spirit is not the only spirit who speaks, is he? We believe that, don't we? There are other spirits, if you read in the, the Gospels, who can speak too, can't they? The devil has a message that he wants to spread across our world. So miraculous or supernatural does not equal from God, does it? Because actually supernatural can be something else. There are other forces at work in our world, both natural and supernatural. So how can we tell if we're being hoodwinked? How can we tell if we're being deceived or lied to? How can we tell if actually we're the ones doing the hoodwinking? Because I don't think they're always aware. This is really important, isn't it? Because if we can't discern true from false, what confidence can we have that we believe the truth if we can't tell the difference? If we can't tell whether we're being taught what is true or not, what confidence can we have that we're growing in the true faith and not actually drifting away into a counterfeit one? How can we know whether we're being taught the truth by someone if the Spirit is really speaking through them? Even me, this morning, how can you tell if I'm telling you the truth or if I'm a false teacher? Now, originally, we were going to look at three tests this morning that John gives us in these verses. I got a bit carried away in prep this week, so we're just going to look at one, uh, the first one in uh, so verses one to four, and then we're going to look at the other two another time. But test one is what do they say about Jesus? How do we know if the Spirit is speaking through someone? What do they say about Jesus? Have a look with me again at verses two and three. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Two things we see here. Firstly, if the Holy Spirit is really speaking through a person, they'll tell you about Jesus. If the Holy Spirit's really speaking through a person, they'll tell you about Jesus. Think about that for a second. A spirit-filled teacher talks about Christ. We get asked quite a lot about our view on, on the Holy Spirit. Do we believe that he gives miraculous gifts, things like that? But John says, really, if you want to know whether the Spirit is present, ask them about Jesus. Listen to what they say about him. Because the test of the spirits is what they confess, not about the spirit, but about Christ. Paul says much the same in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3. You'll see it on the back of your notice sheets. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3. Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever said Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So what we say about Jesus reveals the presence or absence of the Spirit. Just as our acceptance or denial of Jesus determined whether we had the Father back in chapter 2, so the acceptance or denial of Jesus determines whether we have the Spirit here in chapter 4, whether he's speaking through us. So it's not about flashy signs and wonders or predicting the future. Jesus talks about false prophets, the same word as we have in verse 1, 
in Matthew 24, who will perform great signs and wonders, but they'll do it to deceive people. In the Old Testament, people were warned of false prophets who would be able to perform signs and wonders and even predict the future. But if their message was to serve a different God, then they were to ignore them. So if the Holy Spirit is really speaking through someone, it's what they say that will reveal it, specifically what they say about Jesus. They'll talk about Jesus. Secondly, though, if the Holy Spirit is really speaking through a person, there's something specific that the Holy Spirit will confess. That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now that's not that that will be the the subject of every sermon or every conversation or every utterance. But it will be there in the mix of it all. And it certainly won't be contradicted. And if it is contradicted, then there's a big problem. Now what it's saying here is more than just that Jesus was real. We saw the historical test again right back in chapter 1, didn't we, that John put to us. Do we believe that Jesus is real? Do you believe these events actually happened? But this is more than that. It's talking about Jesus' identity, his nature. It's saying that Jesus is the Christ of God, the anointed one, the eternal son of God. That's the first thing. But then secondly, that he also became a man, took on flesh, became a human being. I would say probably the majority, or at least a a huge amount of false teaching over the past 2,000 years, has fallen down at this point. Who is Jesus? Now, I don't want to give you a percentage because I've been making it up, but this is a litmus test for false teaching. Do they say that Jesus is the Christ God's only begotten son, and that he came in the flesh, that he took on manhood and kept it. That might seem quite simple. One simple test, two simple points. But again, it's not always that easy to spot. You see, one of the problems that we have is that compared with Christians historically, we're generally a bit unclear on our understanding of the nature of Christ, of how those two fit together. If you like, our heresy bell isn't quite as attuned as it should be, as it was in previous generations. I think there's three reasons for that. The first one is that there's a general move away nationally and globally, away from systematic doctrine, sort of the isms and all those sorts of things, and away from creeds as well. Now, I think that's healthy in a way. God doesn't give us a systematic theology, did he? He gave us a Bible to read. But on the other hand, all false teachers agree on the Bible in some form. But it's when you start to dig under the surface that the problems arise. So nearly every false teacher would say that Jesus is the Son of God. It's written there in the Bible, isn't it? They can't really contradict that. But how they would understand that term is very different from what we would say. So it's when you actually start to dig underneath that the problems come. There's a long list of people with very weird, wrong and differing views about Jesus down through the ages who could say Jesus is the Son of God. So we actually need something to be able to to dig underneath it, some systematics to be able to talk about it. Though actually, one of the most common ways that the falsehood is taught here is that it just isn't taught. We don't talk about the nature of Christ. We don't talk about the fact that he took on flesh and what that means. 
Would you know, for example, if I was a heretic in this area? Have we talked enough about the nature of Christ for you to know if I held the wrong view? And that's a challenge to me and, and to you as well, isn't it? To know what is right in this area. So we mustn't be scared of systematics and ancient creeds as long as they sit under the Bible, not over the Bible. It's okay to look at them and talk about them as a help, but not as a replacement for the Bible. We don't teach those things, we teach the Bible. So that's the first reason why we've got a bit of a problem here. The second is that we think that the nature of Christ and all those sort of isms and things is the realm of professionals. By that, I mean they think that it's for ministers or pastors or for theologians. But the thing is that we're all theologians, aren't we? We all have a view of God. We all have an understanding of God. In that sense, we're all theologians. We might be fairly sloppy ones, but we're all theologians. And pastors aren't professionals. We're Christians, just like everybody else. I don't think it's this important because I'm a pastor. I think this is important because I'm a Christian. And it's not as complicated as you might think. I mean, children used to be routinely taught about the nature of Christ through catechisms. So here's one for you, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Only ever gets the first question ever quoted, uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism. Here's question number 21, that's way down the list, never gets quoted. Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? Answer. The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God became man, and so was, and continues to be, God and man in two distinct natures, and one person forever. That was taught to children. Now it takes a bit of unpacking and explaining, but it's not beyond us to be able to understand these things. It's not for somebody else to think about. But I think the biggest reason that our heresy bell is not so well attuned in this area is three, in the end, we don't think it matters all that much, if we're honest. We know that it should be important, but we don't get what big difference it makes. But it makes a huge difference. It's fair to say, if we don't get this right, we'll end up believing a false gospel. Which, of course, is what John is so desperate to avoid, isn't he? Why? Because if Jesus, for example, is not fully God, really God, truly God, then he can't be the sacrifice that we need. His blood shed on the cross would have no value. Or worse, God would be putting the punishment that we deserve, not on himself, but on somebody else, an innocent third party. So it's not enough for Jesus to be a bit God, or mostly divine, he must be fully God, otherwise he doesn't work as a sacrifice. And Jesus must be fully man, otherwise he can't be the substitute that we need. The Son of God became fully human. He didn't just appear human. He didn't possess a body for a period of time and then leave it. He became a man. Because only as a man could he die for men and women as a substitute, a swap, like for like. It's not enough for him to be partly human, or man on the outside and God on the inside, or man for some of the time and God for some other time. He needs to be fully God and fully man, or the gospel falls apart, doesn't it? And you're left with a powerless gospel, with a dodgy sacrifice or a dodgy substitute. 
So what should we believe about this then? Well, I'm going to put one of the creeds up on the, the screen. Here's the first half of the Chalcedonian Creed, which I believe, not because it's a creed, but because I believe it reflects the Bible's teaching well. This is what it says. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhead, truly God and truly man. They didn't know we were singing this earlier, did you? Truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul, a rational soul, and body, of one substance with the Father as regards to his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards to his manhood, like us in all respects, apart from sin. What it's saying there is Jesus was and is the Son, the second person of the Trinity, made man. He had a human body and a human soul. He redeems whole people. He can sympathise with whole people because he was and is a whole person. That's what it's saying. If he was only a bit God or a bit man, he couldn't do that. And yet he was and is God. God from eternity, creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime, creator, redeemer, holy one of Israel, God of God, light of light, timeless, faultless, spotless, prince of peace, Lord of all, Lord of hosts, the great unchangeable I am. He's all those things as well. That is Jesus Christ. And we've got to ask the question, is that what they are teaching? Is that what we're being taught? Is the person that's claiming to speak for God saying that? Maybe not in those exact words, but is that the gist? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, come in the flesh. If that's not what they're saying, says John, that it's not the Holy Spirit that's speaking. Whatever the signs, whatever the mantra, if it's not the Spirit of Christ speaking, says John, it's the Spirit of the Antichrist. Follow with me at verse 3 again. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Antichrist, if you were here a few weeks ago, are not figures from horror movies. They're people who deny the true nature of Christ and especially those who teach others to do the same. Here he uses it in the same breath as false prophets. That's what they are. They're not necessarily some big end-time figure, though there may be a big one at the end, who knows? But John says antichrists were already here in the world in the first century. That's what he says, they're here already. But now they've got websites. They've got books. They've got TV programs, they've got DVDs, they've got CDs of music. Even if no one will put them in the pulpit, they can still get into our ears and eyes, can't they? In all sorts of different ways. Did you know, if you ask most spiritual sort of questions about prayer and about God and things like that, if you put them on the internet, put them in Google, generally a top answer is from a, a cult, from a heretical group. Even if it's not immediately obvious, sometimes you have to go down to that, that bit at the bottom that they put on, don't they say, oh, you know, this is copyright of this. When you, when you Google that, you suddenly find out that it's part of some other organisation. This is what people are trying to feed us. So as I said last time, if we get so preoccupied with the coming of one antichrist at the end, we're in danger of missing the ones that are all around us, teaching falsehoods about Jesus. 
So should we be scared of these antichrists? No, says John. And that's our final point, encouragement. Encouragement. We have overcome. We have overcome. Have a look with me at verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. What it's saying here is that we have overcome and we shall overcome. The spirit who lives in us is greater than the spirit of the Antichrist that dwells in the world. In other words, God is greater than the devil. That's what he's saying. We shall not be defeated because we've already overcome them in Christ. We've not believed the lies of the world. We've not stiffened to the, the deceitful schemes of the devil. How do we know? Because we're trusting in Jesus. 1 John 5 verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. And 1 John 5 verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. If you're trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation, you've already overcome the spirit of the Antichrist. If you believe the truth about Jesus and who he really is, you've overcome the devil. Not by your own strength or cunning, but by the precious blood of Jesus and by his spirit. John in Revelation writes of those who overcome the great dragon, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they keep trusting even to the point of death. Every time we trust Jesus instead of the world, instead of our own flesh, instead of the lies of the devil, we overcome the evil one. The one who is in us, the Holy Spirit, is greater than the devil, is greater than the spirit of the Antichrist. If you want proof, look no further than the church. The church globally. We're still here, 2,000 years later, despite persecutions, attacks, schisms, scandals. We're still here, despite 2,000 years of heresies about Jesus. We face adoptionism, here's some isms for you, adoptionism, Arianism, Apollinarianism, Docetism, Eutychianism, Nestorianism, Gnosticism, Patripassionism, Serinthianism, they're just the ones I can pronounce. And we've overcome. We've done it. There are more wrong beliefs about Jesus available today than at any other point in history. And yet we're still here. He who is in us really is greater than he who is in the world. And that should encourage us. We may have deficient heresy bells, but they're backed up by the Spirit. We may have deficient heresy bells, but we've got 2,000 years of church history to fall back on. We may have deficient heresy bells, but hopefully we're getting more and more attuned over time as the years go on. As Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, he does this so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by the craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Part of growing up in Jesus is that we're less susceptible to the lies of false teachers. We will overcome. 
So ring that heresy bell. If you hear talk of being uh, Jesus being less than God or not quite man, ring that heresy bell. If they're telling you that Jesus was only God or only man, ring that heresy bell. If they're telling you that Jesus was God for a bit or man for a bit, and if you find that you're ringing your heresy bell all the time, whether in YouTube videos or book series or church sermons, move on somewhere else. Get some good truth. Find out who Jesus is and worship him. Give him the glory and the honour that he really is due as fully God and fully man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Father, thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit. We thank you for him and we thank you that he helps us in this battle that we have in this world to keep believing the truth, to keep having faith. Father, we pray that that would be the case this week, that we would keep going, that we wouldn't believe the lies of the devil, but instead would believe the truth. And Father, pray you keep us going and growing and trusting in the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen.